0: Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We are starting a new series in the Gospel of Mark. We finished a short series uh, last week or the week before. You had a little uh, taste of my dad preaching last week, which I'm very grateful for. Um, And now we're starting into the Gospel of Mark. There are, of course, four Gospels, each with differing emphases and perspectives, Yet they all tell the same good news right they all tell the glorious news of our Savior uh, Jesus Christ Mark though is unique in a few ways and so I just want to kind of hi- highlight a few of these ways before we get into the text first it 's a comparatively brief gospel right uh, it, it, compared to the gospel the other gospel writers uh, it's short it doesn't include as much detail though at a few places it actually includes more detail than the other gospel writers. Um, Unique detail. And stylistically, you might say it's action-oriented. You'll notice as we go go through the text that Mark's transitions like a a rapid fire. Everything seems to happen immediately afterwards. So they go from one event to another, saying, and immediately, and then, and then, and immediately, following. They did this, that, and the other. Um, And it creates this sense of of rush. And it is, for him, a sense of rush. He's trying to get to the Passion narrative, which takes up a big bulk of uh, the text of the Gospel of Mark. So, a big chunk, almost half of the Gospel, is, is uh, just dealing with the Passion narrative. Um, and so, there's this rush to that. Um, there's another aspect to the Gospel of Mark there's a sense of both mystery. And then revelation, mystery and revelation. Um, at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus' identity is hidden, not from the reader so much, but from those uh, people with, within the narrative itself. And so there's this sense of Jesus holding back his identity until the moment, until the time of his prescription. And, and then it hits this point where Peter confesses Christ in the, in the gospel in chapter 8, um, and after that... It's Jesus revealed, Jesus, the mystery revealed, and then there's a move to the cross. Um, a couple other things about uh, the Gospel of Mark. It was likely uh, written while, uh, while Mark was in Rome. This is John Mark. You'll remember him as a companion of both Barnabas and Paul. He was also a companion of Peter, and he was probably in Rome with Peter during uh, the reign of Nero, right? That Horrible Roman Empire who launched uh, a terrible persecution after the fire, the great fire of Rome. Um, But Peter and Mark were writing, or Mark was writing uh, his gospel at this point, and he was likely writing a lot of what was coming from Peter's own perspective. Uh, Most all commentators going back to the very earliest ages see this as kind of, in some ways, Peter's gospel, though certainly Mark. Uh, it's his gospel. He, he, he puts his own mark on it in that sense. Um, uh, he was as well an eyewitness of Jesus. Uh, his mother's home was one of the sort of you might call the the bases, the, uh, the locations where Jesus and the disciples would find refuge. And so John Mark's home became a place of refuge. And so John Mark himself as a young man was an eyewitness of Jesus. In fact, Commentators think that uh, he actually puts himself in the story in, sort of in, uh, in, in a way that is maybe not ultimately very clear. But there's a young man at, during when Jesus was being arrested who flees naked. I don't know if you remember that. It's sort of his own shame coming out there. And a lot of people think that that's John Mark, um, though it's a little unclear. Um, the gospel actually has no superscription. In, in other words, there's nothing that says this is the gospel according to Mark. Um, uh, tradition Says it is And going all the way back to the earliest fathers um, So John Mark Wrote the gospel but he didn't want himself To be the center of the gospel No Mark is interested In highlighting one person Right He's interested in highlighting The person of Jesus Christ The son of God And we see that at the very outset of the text here. So let's jump into the text. Your text has before you verses 1 to 11. We're going to be looking actually at verses 1 to 13. I'll read those last two verses for you. They're not printed, but if you have your Bibles, you can open there uh, with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Hear God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water immediately, and he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, your Son. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would reveal to us Jesus more clearly. That we would see his glory, his power, his love. And his compassion and mercy. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, Mark begins his gospel at an interesting point. Uh, Matthew and Luke begin with the birth narrative. Right? They talk about Jesus' origin story, if you will. John begins with a theological treatise concerning Jesus as the divine word. But Mark, as noted at the beginning, is action-oriented. No long prologue, no origin story. He simply and concisely says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he brings us to the wilderness where John the Baptist is baptizing people from Jerusalem and Judea. But even though Mark's prologue is short here, this very first verse, though it's short, it is a prologue. In fact, in many ways it's like a thesis statement. It's seven short words, at least in the Greek it's seven words. I think in your text it's probably twelve or something like that. But in the Greek it's seven words, and it's The entire gospel almost that Mark is writing wrapped up into this one verse. It is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, God's beloved Son, the one sent by God to save his people from their sin. And the good news begins in the wilderness with a camel, hair clothed, locust eating, wild preacher named John. And it was here in the desert at the Jordan River, that Jesus' ministry began. It's here that the good news was first, at least in the New Testament sense, proclaimed. And the most striking aspect of this beginning of the good news that Mark unfolds is that Jesus, He, the King and Lord of all, God's beloved Son, that He came. That that in itself is astounding. And he came into the wilderness. He came to be baptized with the same baptism that the sinful Judeans and people from Jerusalem were receiving. He came and he was tempted and he was tried and he faced wild beasts. And he was put into a place where he needed ministering angels to come to him. He came. And this is the good news. That we need to hear that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, came. And that's what I want us to reflect on today. And I'm going to look at it in three parts. The first is simply preparation in the wilderness for this coming Messiah, right? We're going to look at the preparation for this coming Messiah. The second is the Son came to be baptized and to baptize. And then finally, the Son came to be judged. Those are the three things that I want to look at, this God who came to us. So first, preparation in the wilderness for the coming Messiah. Following his brief prologue, Mark quotes from the Old Testament prophets. We read them, actually, uh, earlier in our service, the, there's a quote from both Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. And just as an aside, here it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, um, this isn't because Mark had no idea that Malachi wrote those words. He was fully aware, but it was a common practice to highlight the, the greater prophet, right? So Isaiah was the greatest sort of prophet, writing prophet, that is, um, Of the Old Testament. So he was acknowledged as the main source. That was not necessarily to say he didn't understand that Malachi also wrote. But in both the Malachi and Isaiah passages, these two passages were looking toward the Messiah, the one who would come. Um, And they were calling, both Isaiah and Malachi were calling on the messenger, this person, to come and to prepare the way. Malachi, in chapter 3 of his last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, described the preparation as a preparation for the day of the Lord. It was the day in which God would come and judge. It was the day that the refiner's fire would come and cleanse and purify God's people and prepare them. In that day, he would be both Uh, It would be both a day of purification as well as a day of judgment. And the hope was that through the refiner's fire, the people of God would be purified and made righteous. That's that's what's going on in, in the prophet Malachi. But there's also this warning, if you will, in Malachi, that those who refuse to turn to God, who would persist in their sin, would be sure to face the judgment of God. Similarly, in the prophet Isaiah... He begins with a word of comfort. He says, comfort, comfort ye my people. We have this beautiful text that we often sing and and speak at Christmas time and Easter time. Um, But there's this sense of comfort that Isaiah is trying to bring. And he goes on to describe the coming of the Lord, not just for comfort, but with might and with recompense to bring judgment, in other words. And yet... He also comes, as Isaiah says, as a good shepherd who will tend his flock and gather the lambs into his arms and carry them in his bosom. This is the language of Isaiah 40. The great God, the mighty one, is going to come. He's going to bring judgment, yes, but he's coming to shepherd his people. Both prophets call on one to call out and prepare the way of the Lord this lord who would come to judge and to save but isaiah emphasizes another aspect of this messiah who is to come in this day of preparation the voice of the one preparing the way was to cry in the wilderness And it's the theme of wilderness that Mark picks up here in these first 13 verses of his gospel. Did you notice this? The first section, John appears in the wilderness, right? John comes and he's proclaiming. Um, Then Jesus comes into the wilderness and is baptized and the God spirit comes upon him and declares him as the son of God but Jesus enters the wilderness and then the spirit takes Jesus and throws him out deeper into the wilderness to face wild beasts and the temptation of Satan where he needs the ministering angels in the wilderness it's this sort of three part wilderness so what's what is being communicated here by this concept of the wilderness right this seems to be a big deal to Mark. He starts his entire gospel in the wilderness. Well, it's a rich theme, the wilderness, all throughout Scripture. Beginning all the way back in the, in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 and so forth, there's this juxtaposition, if you will, between the chaos of the uncultivated world and Eden, right? Adam is in the garden tending, and there's this beautiful garden, but the idea is outside of that garden is chaos. When when Adam sins, he's thrust out of the garden into the chaos east of Eden. Moses and the Israelites leave Egypt and go through the Red Sea and enter the wilderness, right? They end up spending 40 years in the wilderness, but it's there that they travel with God. Here in the wilderness is the place where they're tempted and tried. It was the place where God met with his people for the first time in Mount Sinai. It was in the wilderness. It was also the place where God's people rebelled, where they grumbled and complained for 40 and ended up wandering for 40 years. Do you remember the prophet Elijah? He has this amazing scene where he... Is defeats the, the uh, prophets of Baal on the mountaintops where, where he prays and, you know, sets this altar on fire and uh, this amazing thing where, where God's power is shown to the people of Israel. And, and then after that, Jezebel chases him out of Dodge and he goes into the wilderness. And he thinks he's all alone and he says, God, just let me die here in the wilderness ministering angels come to Elijah and say you're going to spend 40 days with me here 40 nights and we're going to walk to Mount Horeb and you're going to meet with God in the wilderness the wilderness is often a place of desolation and danger and testing it's also a place of refuge and a place where God meets his people Throughout the prophets, the wilderness is that place that will ultimately be transformed. We capture a bit of this in the Isaiah text that we read. And then again in Isaiah 41, it says, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive trees. I will place the juniper in the desert, together with the box tree and the cypress. God is painting a picture of what he's going to do to transform the wilderness. So it's here that John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. He calls all the people of the surrounding community of Judea and Jerusalem, and he says, come out to the wilderness. Just as the Lord had called the people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, now again the people of God are being called out into the wilderness. And they came out. They came out from Jerusalem and Judea, and John called them to do what? To repent. To be baptized to prepare themselves. It was said in Isaiah that a highway would be made in the wilderness. The valleys would be brought up and the mountains would be made low low and this pathway for God would be created. The wilderness itself was going to be prepared for the Lord. But here in John's baptism. Here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it wasn't the wilderness per se that was being prepared and transformed, but it was the people of God. They were being transformed. They were repenting. They were looking for renewal and forgiveness. They were looking to be like pools of water in the wilderness. They were longing to be cultivated and changed. And isn't that all of us? Like the dry and dusty wilderness, our hearts are chaotic, often barren, rebellious. Like Israel of old, we often grumble and complain. We turn to worship false gods. Temptation and sin are part and parcel of our lives. And we desperately need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need to be washed clean and made new and restored. In other words, we desperately need good news. For some of you, this story is is well known, the story that I'm telling. You know your own nature, you know your hearts, that apart from God, they, they have this character of rebellion and sin. You know your daily need of forgiveness and the forgiveness that comes through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, yet, and this is the the struggle of all of us as believers, yet despite knowing that reality, oftentimes, oftentimes you find yourself like a desert, dry, lonely. David in Psalm 102 expressed this feeling this way he said hear my prayer o lord and let me cry let my cry for help become come to you do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress incline your ear to me in the day when i call answer me quickly for my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like earth my heart has been smitten like grass and withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread because of the loudness of my groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I resemble an owl in the wilderness. That's a, that's a strange picture. <laughs> but you think of the owls, the lonely bird, right? The bird alone looking for sustenance and food. I have become like an owl in the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. Spiritually, have you been there, brothers, sisters? John calls us to come out to the wilderness. Or if we're in the wilderness, to repent. To seek forgiveness. To look to, to the one who is able to, to change those dry places and make them like a pool of water bubbling up. For others of you, this story that I've been painting here is this strange story. All this metaphor and talk of the Messiah and this ancient Israelite history, it's a bit odd. For some of you, this is the way it is. Yet I'm, I know, for a fact, because I'm human, I know you also know deep down what I'm talking about. That unsettled, empty feeling you get when you are alone with yourself. When you see the mess that you've created in life. When you regret. I always find it telling when someone says, I have no regrets. It's like they have to say it because, well, they do. Is that you? You know that feeling of of regret and deep remorse. You feel hopeless and helpless. Friend, you have an opportunity to, to come and to repent and to turn away from the old life and to come to the one who can forgive you fully, freely, to create those waters that I'm talking about in you, this is good news. And this brings me to my second point. The son came to be baptized and to baptize. You see, John was preparing the way by preparing people for Jesus. John said, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, who is this character John for a minute? Uh, John was like a rock star. Well, he had long hair, so that makes him a rock star, right? He had hip clothes. He was kind of alternative. He had that cutting-edge diet thing going on. But in all seriousness, John was like a rock star. People flooded from all over. It says all of Judea, all of Jerusalem came out to see him. He was like a rock star. People wanted to hear what he had to say. They viewed him as the great prophet, greater than Elijah himself. They, they saw him as the second Elijah. Here he had come. We know from the other Gospels that he had followers dedicated to him. That when Jesus came around, they're like, what's up with that guy over there, John? But John did not view himself this way. John knew what he was about. He knew that his relative, cousin, was the Messiah, right? What an amazing thing. Do you remember John leapt in Elizabeth's womb the first time he met Jesus? They met each other in utero. And he leapt, he jumped for joy, even at that moment, knowing that he was not the one. He was simply a herald, a voice, of one calling in the desert. Feet are a dirty thing. I don't like feet. I don't like other people's feet. I don't even like my own feet. Feet in a dusty Middle Eastern world without modern socks and shoes were, I can't even imagine, honestly. <laughs> I think they'd be nasty. And only the lowest of the low servants would deal with the sandals of their masters. They were, only the worst would go and un, have to tie and untie and clean feet and do all that. That was, the, that was the bottom of the barrel if you were a servant. John said he wasn't even worthy to do that. So you see, John understood that he was a man of the wilderness. That he was a sinner. And that he needed the streams of water. He needed to be cleansed. He needed the transformational work of the Spirit just as the people to whom he was preaching. He also understood that his baptism, what he was doing, was symbolic and it was not the thing in itself. He says, I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. His baptism had no power to transform lives. Just as an aside, there's always a danger to make our rituals the thing in themselves, right? Attending church can be a ritual. You can think, if I just go to church, everything will be okay. Or if I just say my prayers, everything will be okay. If I just read scripture, everything will be okay. If I just get baptized, if my kid is baptized, whatever it is, I'll just be okay. If I I just take the supper every week, I'll just be okay. don't misunderstand right god uses all these means of grace by the power of his spirit as we take hold of them by faith we do these things in faith god uses them and they're efficacious in that sense they change us but it's not the thing in itself it's god's spirit at work in us and they're effective God is the one who applies. The Spirit is the one who applies the truths of God's revealed word in various ways. He applies it to our hearts and He changes us. John's baptism was insufficient. It was a baptism that pointed to the need for cleansing from sin, a baptism of repentance. But He was pointing forward. As he baptized people and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. One who is coming is greater than I, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. This one who's coming, repent, turn from me. And he was pointing people forward to the power of the one who could change lives. Who could baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And here's the most astonishing thing. Because here's John. He's doing this. The rock star. He's out there. He's baptizing. He's saying, I'm unworthy for the, from the one who comes after me is greater than me. And I'm more unworthy even to untie his sandals. And Jesus comes marching in, right? Marching up to the river. He knew who Jesus was. In the other Gospels he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knows who Jesus is and Jesus comes up to him and here's the Son of God present with him. And what does Jesus say? Baptize me. This is astonishing. This is absolutely astonishing. Jesus came to the wilderness to be baptized by John. Doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? This whole baptism thing was for sinners who were defiled, who were dirty, who were broken. And he says, put me under that same water. I, I need to join them in this baptism for forgiveness of sins. I can't, I can't help but think John was a bit confused by this. I can't help but think he must have been sort of baffled by what was going on. But this is the story of the one who comes to the desert, to the wilderness. This is the story of the one who comes to transform it. And he does it by identifying with it. Let me rephrase, by identifying with us. Unclean sinners. Jesus, when he was baptized by John, was saying, I am like you. And when he came up out of the water, something else happened, something even more spectacular. The heavens opened up, and the Spirit of God came down upon uh, Jesus like a dove, just like that, like a dove. By the way, the dove in the Old Testament symbolized the preserving presence of God. Remember, it was the dove that brought back a sign of dry ground to Noah in the flood, saying, I'm with you. You've been on this water for 40 days and 40 nights, but you're preserved because God is with you. But the Spirit came on Jesus, anointing Him as the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins and a voice came out of heaven and declared this is my son in whom in him i am well pleased so yes jesus identified himself with us but he was also greater than us wasn't he in this moment the desert became an oasis the dwelling place of God was with his people. Jesus as the great mediator, that high priest. Jesus as the prophet, the one who would proclaim the good news, freedom, and forgiveness. In just a few, in just a little bit, in a chapter or so, Jesus is going to come out and he's going to forgive sins. And the, the leaders, the, the Jewish authorities are going to say, Who are you with that authority to forgive sins? The Son of God. Jesus the prophet and Jesus the king who would with all authority make this wasteland a flourishing oasis, a fertile land. That picture of a highway is what you know, the ancients would do to, to create a, a pathway, not, not for general use, but a pathway for the king and his army. And so the the valleys are brought up and the mountains are brought low and this great wasteland has become this fertile plain and now it is a pathway for the living God. God present, reigning with his people. He identified with us. But he was greater than us. The last thing I want to look at this amazing God-man who came. He came to be judged. He came to be judged, briefly and in conclusion. I've said this before, but water baptisms throughout the Old Testament were not just sort of nice little washing ceremonies. Some of them were. Some of them were just like, we're going to wash our hands. Priests would do that. We're going to wash our utensils. Priests, uh, that became a tradition. But the, the greatest pictures of baptism in the Old Testament were pictures of judgment, right? Noah and the flood, judgment. Noah was preserved. All of humanity was wiped out in judgment. The Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army. The people of God were preserved, kept on dry land. Pharaoh and his army were washed. They were judged. And it is here that Jesus, when he goes under the water and identifies himself with sinners, is pointing to the need for this justice, this need for judgment, the only one who is able to fully satisfy the wrath and curse that is for us as sinners was Jesus himself. And so Jesus was sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. And it's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, you know, the temptation of Jesus in the other Gospels is, is, is quite lengthy. And we get this dialogue between Jesus and Satan and Satan and there's this temptation that goes on and we get sort of a full picture but here we get just two two short verses the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness verse 1 or verse 12 verse 13 and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him one commentator noted in this saying about this little picture is that this is not Part of what Mark is saying is, yes, he was formally tempted for 40 days, but really his entire ministry was one of wilderness, wild animals, temptation, and ultimately facing death itself in the wilderness for us. He was hung on a cross. He was crucified. And in that moment, Jesus was making this dry place a fertile ground. He was bringing life. He was giving rivers of life. Jesus says that He is the river of life flowing through Him. This is is who Christ is. All of life flowing from Him. And it is that heaven and earth come together in the brokenness of this world. Jesus enters in and He makes Himself nothing taking on the form of a servant. He humbles himself and is willing to die on our behalf. This is the good news, friends. Because of that work, Jesus coming into the wilderness, facing the justice and judgment that we deserve, that we have life. Believers, you know this. Are you resting in that finished work of Christ? Are you... Are you drinking from that fountain of life daily? Are you coming to Him and looking to Him and resting on Him? Unbeliever, you have an opportunity today. You have an opportunity to make the waste lands of your heart springs of living water. Put your trust in Christ today. Know that He forgives your sins. This is the good news. This is what Mark is all about. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.